When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, yeah, um, hold on. Not a, yeah. Yeah, guy. Come on. on. Come on. Hold on. Hold on, guy. <laughs> um, we've been telling people, obviously, about this delicious beverage, Athletic yes. Greens, and how it benefits our lives. Yes. Um, but I feel a need. We need to break down not only how it benefits our lives, we need to give them reset what exactly it is. Athleticgreens.com slash surf. Not only are they a pon- uh, sponsor of the show, but it is a all-in-one superfood powder with all of your nutritional essentials. One tasty scoop. It has 75 uh, vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multi-mineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more. Essentially fills in the gaps of your diet, increases energy and focus, aids with digestion, and supports a healthy immune system all without the need to take multiple products or pills, Scott. Look, you and I know that health is important as we move through life. Health is a dynamic. So Athletic Greens has created a comprehensive formula that helps you, David, and me adapt as our daily needs change due to stress, sleep patterns, and my imperfect diet. So my daily dose of Athletic Greens is like nutritional insurance, athleticgreens.com slash surf. We sound like a couple of professionals. (laughs) I love my athletic greens, dude. I mean, I love it too. I love it too, completely. I was on the road last week and I find my diet's always messed up, obviously, when you're on the road. Um, Timing, scheduling, and then of course, different foods. But that's one thing that you can do that keeps it consistent. Yeah. You know, what's amazing is that everything is messed up when you go on the road, like beyond like So like my morning prayer, my morning meditation, my diet, like there's so many things that every single one of us is disrupted by, of, because of that. It seems like there's, there's a, there's a business there somehow, you know, like we're all, none of us can get our routine dialed in and maybe it's an impossible thing to ask, but I, I think about that with pro surfers, the ones who can create a home environment on the road and bring their home kind of from place to place have a tremendous advantage. And I think that's a lot of Kelly Slater's success over the years is he's at home most on the road. Yeah, you're right. And that's just like, I mean, I'm assuming that's just an experience thing. Like the more you do it, the more you kind of know how to do it. And I think for him specifically, it was staying with people on the road, staying with friends who become family over the course of a decade. Um, That's a huge advantage over some new rookie who just gets on tour and is staying in hotels. You know, that might be also why you hear so many people froth about Tahiti as one of their favorite stops on tour, because it is kind of like everyone's coming home for a little bit. Yeah, Yeah. because they stay with other families. Well, call us in. As we see some movement at the takeoff zone it's kelly slater grabbing rail a clean entry this thing holding open it spits when it spit me i thought it was going to spit me off my board comes out with the spit spits him out comes out after the spit gets spat out of another good looking wave here spit 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 we're just spitballing right yeah i got well, 
Yeah, guy. Welcome, everybody. It is Spit. We talk surfing. David Lee Scales, Scott Bass. David Scales, if you prefer, no middle name. And uh, it is Wednesday, July 14th. And man, we got a lot going on in the world of surf. The Olympics are coming up, David. Um, just next week is the kickoff of the Olympic Games. And everything seems to be focused towards, at least in our little subcultural sphere, uh, with Olympic surfing. So we got that, and there's some great south swell in the water here uh, along the um, Pacific coastline, all the way from, you know, Colombia. Actually, probably all the way down from like Chile up to Alaska, that seems to be south swell in the water. What's, uh, what's the Olympic forecast looking like? Wave pools, baby. I don't know. Yeah. Let me look. I've actually, I, I did a podcast with Sean Thompson yesterday, and he was telling me that Matt Biolis is claiming there's going to be a typhoon, which is just, you know, okay, yeah, we're all hoping for that. But I think I mentioned last week when you and I were speaking that I've been watching, and I'm going to pull it up right now. I'm going to pull up StormSurf, but I've been watching some of the low pressure, sort of like the overlying, um, you know, what's happening um, with sort of that side of the, of the, of the globe regarding low pressures. And there were some things that spun off that didn't turn into anything, but had the potential to turn it. Like it wasn't completely like placid and, you know, benign. So let's take a peek here. Um, while you're looking it up, when you chatted to Sean, did you talk about his new book? Well, I don't think so. What's it called? I don't remember Wait, talking you, about a book. <laughs> Maybe, the thing about Sean is that he's always got like a series of notes. You can see him like cheating over to his notes. So he's probably talking about his book, but didn't mention the title of his book. Oh my God, I'm, I've got a, hold, I've got a freaking typhoon. I've got a hold, on, hold on, let me finish the joke. Let me finish the joke. I was setting you up there. Um, I got a DM from a listener. It's going to take me a second to find it. Yeah, yesterday he goes, hey, did the Duke of the Year goes to Scott for interviewing Jim Kempton on their Wally's on his book tour without realizing he was interviewing somebody on their book tour. <laughs> I did not know. I had no idea. I swear to God. It's so, crazy. no, Sean does not have a book. I was just trying to make a callback to oh, Jim Kempton. Funny. And then he what said, the funny, he goes, yeah. the funny thing is, it's a great interview. Jim must have been thinking, when is he going to ask about my book? But it lasted for over an hour. No, he totally did. It was the funniest thing ever. Like I literally, I literally went, well, you know, Jim, gosh, we've covered a lot here today. You know, what a, it's been great talking to you. And he goes, well, what about the book? And I go, what? Book? <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea there was a book. Great interview nonetheless. Hey, so here's what's interesting. Um, I'm looking. So according to Storm Surf, which is my go-to for low pressure, which is what makes waves. There's a typhoon this Saturday. A typhoon forms on Friday. There's a massive typhoon Saturday, and it runs right into the southern tip of, I guess, what is Japan. I don't know my that region very well, but for sure moves into the South China Sea, and it looks like Korea is going to get slammed. And then... Another something else forms behind it on the 21st, which would be a week from today. So, and yeah, what does so there's um, two back to back storms that are wave generating storms? I'm not familiar with typhoon surf, uh, personally. Does that 
I mean, it sounds like a storm, essentially. A hurricane. And a storm, yeah. And that doesn't always mean good surf, right? It could be out of control. Well, the conditions have to really align. Well, yeah, but I'm just saying, um, <clears throat> you know, for the Olympics, you'll take anything. Like, okay, sure. it's six foot and blown out. But, I mean, I don't know. Would you rather have six foot 25 knot onshores or one to two feet? Well, I don't know. what are, The beach that they're doing the contest at, what does it handle? I don't know. I'm not, you know what? That's a question for Surfline. I mean, I've surfed there. I've been there. Um, and it's, I don't know, you know? Yeah. Shitty Sheeta Beach. It's got the greatest name for a beach. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see if it lives up to its name or not. Um, so John John Florence is all but confirmed to be going. All signs are go for him. So that's kind of an update. Um, Kelly will not be competing, obviously, as a result of that. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, how does it, I mean, I guess the question would be who who does one surf benefit and who does six foot typhoon surf benefit? Well, I think the, 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 the answer to that question is sort of not an answer to that question because what we do know is there are surfers in this competition that it does not matter what the waves are like. They're going to be in the contention in contention and that's yeah gabe john john idolo the ones that we know travel around the world for a living and surf in all sorts of conditions and regardless of what it's like they absolutely are heads and tails above the the rest of the field regarding talent skill and experience i disagree john john is not in that conversation john john's in the conversation if the waves are big but no one foot uh japan i would absolutely give it to the brazilians well i'm not saying i'm not giving i'm not I didn't say John, John, I'm telling you that you did. You said Gabe, John, John and Idola would be prepared for any conditions. I'm saying those two are prepared for any conditions. John's prepared for certain conditions. How many world titles has John won? Uh, Two, three, two should have had three, probably should have four except for two injuries. Yeah, exactly. You're Um, telling me that a two-time world champion isn't prepared to surf in any conditions and do well. No, he doesn't have air game, but he's not. He has air game. He has air game. He just doesn't have small wave game. I mean, one to two foot. Gabe I didn't say he's going to win. I said he's going to be prepared for those conditions. Gabe and Idolo, far. I would. You would not put any money on John. That. Yeah. Now yeah. you're you're tweaking what we're saying here. I'm saying that John John Florence is a professional surfer. Totally. He's prepared for any conditions. Yeah, but I said this is what he does for a who living. Who does the original question? Twice with two world titles. But the original question is who's going to benefit from the one foot surf and who's going to benefit from the six foot typhoon surf. And the answer is in both scenarios, Brazilian Gabe and Gabe and, uh, Idolo. Okay. So what you're saying is John doesn't hold a candle to those guys in small waves, which is true. I don't know. But I, you know, but you know who he's got as, as his sparring partner, or his teammate. Kaloe. Kaloe, who does thrive in those small waves. Well, look, who's the the gold medalist is going to be my friend and yours. Um, what's that kid's name? Oh, Otara. <laughs> what's that Japanese? Hiroto Ohara. Hiroto. Friggin' Hiroto is going to throw some rotos in those one to two footers. And, I'd be okay uh, with that. I mean, honestly, it'd be pretty amazing if Japan won gold at the Olympics. Yeah. I would it'd like to fitting. see him something 
part of me is like, I'd like to see him steal the thunder from Kanoa. I don't know so, why. I don't know why I say that, but there's something in my heart that's like, probably because he's getting so overshadowed by Kanoa that it'd be kind of fitting to have this kid just kind of come up and snap victory. So uh, Huntington Beach is a good comparison. The U.S. Open and Hiroto has won a U.S. Open. Kanoa's won two, but Hiroto has won one. So oh, he's got it in him. If, he's got it. In if him. you're if you're running it. those stats, that'd be an argument for him. He does have it in him. I haven't seen him surf in quite a while, though. Yeah, but I mean, dude, he just won. Didn't he like win, or he didn't win, but he qualified for this yeah. thing in El Salvador? I mean, he's he's on his game. I mean, we're going to assume that he's on his game. And uh, do you, what do you yeah. know about the format for the comp? Not much. I really don't know much about it, to be honest. I'm not that engaged in competitive surfing that I'm going to... This is where you're... This is your expertise. You're the guy that follows the QS Warriors and knows all about... what You tell me. You're too busy to know, huh? You're like me. You're busy. Well, I'm good friends, actually, with the contest director, Eric Kramer, uh, as well. And that's exactly what his responsibility is, is that sort of stuff. And I have failed you and our listeners by not reaching out. But I'll, I'll be honest, the yeah. reason why I haven't is because yeah. it doesn't really interest me that much. Like when I have tried to track the, the ISA and Stab actually did write an article about this, um, yeah. I opened it up and I scanned through it and I'm just like, wow, that is so convoluted and confusing. Yeah. I, I'll just kind of like check in along the way. It almost, yeah. which is kind of shocking. I'm, I'm, I started out by saying I failed you, but the reality is they've kind of lost me. I'm a core fan and I want to engage and they've made it so confusing that it feels like I'm going to have to sit down and do a math assignment. Yeah. The fact of the matter is, is that, is that you and I've spoken about this for a long time, that surfing competition needs a disruptor. It needs disruption. And the WSL is trying and, you know, like they're doing some stuff or at least, or maybe they're not. But my point is, is that for sure the ISA is stuck in like three to the beach mentality that, that we were doing in 1972, you know, oh, like yeah. there's no, like, you know, there's just, it's so ripe for somebody to go, you guys, this is stupid. Yeah. Like let's just, you know, but I think Brad, you know, there's a lot so of Gerlach, Gerlach used to do, or he made an effort to do what he was calling the game. And, um, Red Bull has had tremendous success with one-off events like the Cape Fear event. And the success of those is um, highlighting the spectacle, you know, like not getting caught up in the mire of, I don't know, the formality and the all as like, it's just a spectacle and that's what's yeah. fun. And when you do it in the right waves, it's very obvious who the winner is. So all of the mire that is judging in the subjectivity of it and trying to identify the difference between a six, five and a six, seven, all of that gets solved. But when I you're totally in, kind of, with you. when you're in I mean, big treacherous surf, you've been, you've been preaching this for a long time and, and, um, it's so obvious, but you're absolutely right. I mean, and you always use the UFC model and I think that's it. I mean, I guarantee you, David, you and I both know, and I would suggest to you that 99.9% .9 of surf consumers would, would sign up for four of the world's best surfers in 
three hours at a Kandui laughs. Yeah, of course. Like we would be like, yeah. And okay. Yeah. yeah. Maybe a world champion didn't get decided there, but you know what got us fired up was watching these guys try to highlight it and weave through one of the fastest, gnarliest lefts in the world. That's super challenging. That really shows who's got game in the tube. Uh, I mean, that's like the ideal wave. I've been in, I've been front and center on a boat in competition, watching competition there. And it's amazing. Yeah. And I just remember Shane Dorian just absolutely going bonkers out there. And the other great thing about that for the consumer is it's very hard for me to schedule, you know, a full week of watching a WSL competition that maybe it'll get called on Monday. Maybe it'll get called off. So my whole week is just kind of, ultimately I don't commit to the WSL and I just try to squeeze it in throughout my day in the thing that you just explained. That's a three hour window. I could lock everything off in my life for three hours to sit down, pay the $50 or whatever the price is and watch that. And it's a better viewing experience obviously as well. Well, the the one issue you do have there from like a mainstream North American audience is the time difference, but it doesn't really matter. Like I'll wake up and watch the, you know, the theme or whatever, you know, I've gotten up at midnight to watch J Bay when it is, uh, when it's not even guaranteed to be on and there's going to be eight hours of competition, you know, gnarly. Wow. Well, it's, I guess it kind of blows our mind that somebody hasn't picked this up and run with it, you know, like, and part of it is the WSL won't let you have their competitors. That that doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Let's take Asher Pacey and, Exactly. Creed McTaggart and whoever, you know? Well, well, Stab's making an effort with their Surf 100 or whatever, a couple other things that they do. So that's good. But um, that isn't their main business. You know, it's not like they're trying to run a competition circuit. I've got a question, though. Um, so kind of what we're saying about the ISA making it like a math project. Um, yeah. Do that would indicate that even if the waves are pumping, that there is still going to be an element of boredom on display strictly because of the structure of the event. Does the structure of the event undermine any potential kind of excitement? Well, yes, it does. But one thing's for sure is that you and I as end consumers aren't going to see any of that. If we're lucky, we'll see, we might see the final. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything is going to be boiled down NBC and all of that's going to be determined on the fly as their producers or the directors go, hey, you know what? We've got Simone Biles is about to go crazy in the Olympics and we got track and field that's going Richter. And oh my God, we've got a story developing in canoeing that's yeah. mind blowing. And the waves are one foot and it's gray and onshore and it's kind of miserable looking. It's not the sunny, beautiful kind of surf scene we were hoping for to show the mainstream audience. And that's a good point. I don't, dude, surfing is not going to be front center on the, it's just going to be a little highlights package. You're probably good. lucky to even see the gold medal awarded. Good. That's what I prefer. Give me a highlights package. I'll try to track it on Instagram behind the scenes. Um, I wonder too, do they not have online, uh, an online experience, NBC for us yeah. to watch the individual sports? I'm sure, I'm sure that they do. I'm sure there's okay. some sort of app or something, yeah. but you know, you're dealing with a lot of different, 
stakeholders, you know, um, regarding who gets to view what and who gets the rights to what. And the IOC is this mammoth thing that's like, you know, just super patriarchal and just super like, you know, authoritarian and, and how things get delegated and all that stuff's been worked out. But I mean, it's not like you or I have seen anything coming out of the USA Olympic press offices saying, hey, here's how you can watch all the f- action live. Yeah. You know, have you seen anything like that? I haven't. Maybe no. it's out there, but no, I think we, you and I would get an email from somebody. Yeah. Because you know, I know I'm on their list. Let me ask you this final question on the Olympics um, that I have, anyways. How patriotic are you for the surf team USA? Well, I'm very patriotic for USA. For and and for instance, I just happened to stumble across the steeplechase, the women's steeplechase qualifier, right? And there's 15 USA women running, trying to get the last two spots or whatever to make the team. And they're running on this big track and they're jumping over this thing and they're landing in water and they're running and people are eating shit and falling and people's dreams are dying right there. And um, I got teary eyed when the girl, the two girls, you know, passed another and made it. And I mean, it's obvious that they've spent their entire lives for this moment. And that's, that's, you know, I forget your original question, but. Oh, well, I'm how patriotic, patriotic yeah, are I'm you patriotic. about USA surfing though? Surfing specifically. Um, well, what's weird is that because this there's this whole like oh we're a tribe you know surfers don't really even have borders and the usa team never really rallies around their riders the way brazilians or even australians do you never see you know chloe and dino with american flag waving it hoping that you know i don't know you do see chloe you just don't see you and i down at the beach with him waving a flag well my my point is is that it's not i don't sense that there's it's such a weird thing, right? Like there's so much individualism baked into our culture and into the way we're brought up. Like, I don't know. It, and surfing's just not a team thing. I mean, I know there's a lot of individual sports in this. I don't know. I, it's funny. Not, I feel... I'd much rather, I'm much more looking forward to Simone Biles, to track and field, to sort yeah. of the standard Olympic things, because I don't sense that the surfers are really patriotic. I guess that's my, what I'm getting at. I think um, when you talk about steeple, what is it, chasing? I don't know. I've never seen it before, but it was amazing. <laughs> well, <laughs> and, so for that, know. I would automatically root for an American because I know nothing about the sport. I know nothing about the people. I can't even tell who's really better at it probably than the other. So yeah, yeah I'll just ro- root for American because that's my team. Yeah. But with surfing, I really just want the best surfer to win, to be honest. And when you when you started talking about Hiroto O'Hara – it's and Kanoa. I'm like, yeah, I, I've seen both of them surf here locally. I've, um, I like both of their, you know, or certainly Hiroto's personality. I loved when he won the U S open. And so like, I get that and I'm okay rooting for that. And the Brazilians I love because I've seen their prowess, you know, is so dominant in so many other spots that I can root for them. And I can root for Kaloe and John John because there's certain aspects of them that I like, but I'm really almost divorced from my patriotism because I have all these other data points to pull from, you know? Yeah, another part of what you're describing too is the fact that our culture is such a globe-trotting culture. In other words, Hiroto probably spent four months in Huntington Beach, you know, before the US Open or whatever. And 
we all go on trips and we run into boats full of Portuguese and, and Israelis and Brazilians and Hawaiians. And, and we're all sort of intermixed, you know, and it's just the nature of our culture to be that way. There's a lot of travel. Now, women's steeplechase, they, they're in Ohio running for eight years. They never get out. You know what I mean? Like they never get outside of the borders to go. I'm sure there's a couple of international meets here or there. I don't know. But it's not like our sport where we're all just kind of like, you know, for lack of a better phrase, which is I'm going to make you vomit a little bit, but we're this tribe, you know. So anyway, that might and, be part of it. Uh, yeah, I think it is. But I think it's also the having more data points to pull from. Like, I feel this is a bit of a stretch from patriotism to racism. However, when oh. you look at when you look at racists let's say middle America, I don't know, like it's because they've never left their hometown. You know what I mean? They've never left. They're only um, exposed to the people that look similar and act similar. And then if somebody comes in and acts differently, that's an enemy and that feels like a threat and they want to protect against that threat. And so I feel like with surfing or just because you and I are so into surfing, we know who these characters are. We've come to love them. We've come to see their strengths and weaknesses and their challenges that they've overcome and all of that. And now we're compassionate to them. And it's very difficult to then just um, want to want them to lose strictly because of where they were born. You know what yeah, I mean? And, and to continue my line of thought, like if you're a, a, a steeplechase fan, like a <laughs> deep, deep steeplechase fan, and you watch all the steeple, like maybe you're like, my point is, is that, is that you probably know one or two international steeplechase competitors totally. that are like the top, but you yeah. don't know like the way we know, like we know WQS Brazilians and shit, you yeah. know what I mean? Like we know the number 300th Australian surfer, you know, like it's Matt just Banting. way more. Yeah, exactly. It's way more inter, <laughs> intermingled, you know, commingled. Um, is there even a steeplechase or like a world tour organization equivalent? <laughs> there should be. I watched it. It was fascinating. They're chasing steeples around the globe. This Have is incredible. Steeple? These steeples are mean, man. They I'm going to read on you. I am going to be researching this after we get off. I'm now invested. Yeah. Um, let's do you mind moving on from the Olympics? I've got to no, keep the no. timeline tight. I mean, um, wait, I've wait. got it. Hold on. Bathroom break already. No, I just, I'm still on the Olympics. Like oh, okay, my one okay. story is about the Olympics, but okay. I don't know if you saw this. Olympic surfing exposes whitewashed Native Hawaiian roots, an AP story by Sally Ho. No, it's, I haven't seen this. It's an interesting article about Hawaiian natives and cultural appropriation. And um, I guess the, the basis of the story is uh, the white Americans took surfing from Hawaii made it their own, made a bunch of money on it, now have white Americans representing surfing in the Olympics in John John and Carissa. There's no mention of, um, apparently, the, here, I'll read you a little bit here. Um, the effort to take back Surfing's narrative is why sovereignty activists applied for a Hawaii Kingdom national team to compete at the Olympic Games. Their long shot request hinges on the fact that they say there was no ratified treaty that ever formally dissolved Hawaii's autonomy. The United States annexed 
Hawaii in 1898 after the overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy by U.S.-backed forces in 1893. A statement from the International Olympic Committee, which has ignored the request for a Hawaiian surfing team, noted only that applicants must be an, quote, independent state recognized by the international community, end quote. And the article by Sally Ho goes on to say, talk about Duke Onomoko, Olympic swimmer. He lobbied the IOC in 1912 about surfing to include it in the Stockholm Olympics. Um, you know, I guess the gist of this article is um, where's Hawaii in the Olympic Games? I fully understand. <clears throat> why she's making that argument. And this is an argument that comes up every once in a while. It becomes way too convoluted. The Olympics has to just go by what is currently recognized as individual countries. And when you get into this kind of backwater, even if it's right, like even if Hawaii was unjustly annexed back then, that's not for the Olympics to untangle now. Um. Do you think there should be any mention of the Duke Hanamoku name at this Olympics um, by NBC? Should there be a backstory done about him? Well, it depends how far back the commentators go with providing a contextual history for the viewer. And if they kind of want to start at the beginning, then yes, absolutely, he should be included. But I don't know how thorough they'll, they'll be. Well, there's even, there's even some um, ill will from the Kahanamoku family. So there's a gentleman or a woman, I'm not sure, Didi Robello, I guess it's a woman, Didi Robello, a descendant of Kahanamoku, no, it's a guy, a descendant of Duke Kahanamoku said, none of his family members have been contacted to participate in any Olympic celebrations. He said that his grand uncle's name, Duke Kahanamoku, and Duke Kahanamoku's legacy are exploited, which has become a great source of pain for the family because the trademark rights to Kahanamoku name, to the Duke Kahanamoku name, are owned by outsiders. We're getting ripped off, Robello said, and it's embarrassing. So that's a whole I mean, other sort of legal totally. thing that has and really, it, it's kind of like, it, dude, what, what, what do you want me to do? Like, do I need to sit here and feel guilty because there's some legal issue that I have no control over? It's understandable that he would feel ripped off by that, but somebody within the family mismanaged that at some point, you know what I mean? And that's not yeah. also not the Olympics problem. And maybe the Olympics is even aware of that issue and decided to sidestep it completely. And they don't want to objectify. They also don't want to infringe upon. And so they're just maybe not going to mention it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so. Uh, anyway. Here's my other question, though. If you follow the, the problem I have with a lot of this, uh, I don't know, like political. You, 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 you want to make sure that you remain woke here. You got to. Well, the problem I have with woke culture then. Yeah. <laughs> specifically, I'll, I'll attack the woke then yeah. is um, this logic is circuitous and you can you chase it the there's going to be a hypocrisy somewhere along the line of chasing this down. And it's a yeah. matter of when you get to it. And so I'll just start with that lady's article can based on her criteria, can John John be included as a Hawaiian then? Because 
his parents weren't from his parents aren't Hawaiian. Right. And was John, I know John, John was raised in Hawaii. Was he born in Hawaii? And even if he was, does that qualify him? Because he doesn't have Hawaiian blood. You know what I mean? Well, she, they, she tried to interview John, John and Carissa for the article and she did interview. And when, when she basically kind of like pinned him in a corner, basically from a, from a questioning standpoint, it was like, how do you feel about the cultural appropriation of, Dukanamoku and Hawaiians. And she, she basically asked him a bunch of questions he wasn't prepared for. And I'm sure, sure. His, PR, his PR team was like, whoa. Yeah. And he just like went silent. Yeah. And Carissa Moore said, and I'm, I might be butchering the article a little bit. And Carissa Moore basically said, look, I wear the Hawaiian flag on, on my board. Like I wear it proudly. Yeah. And Tatiana Weston Webb went on to say something like, um, Hawaiians are represented, you know, like, yeah. It just depends Good. on how you look at it, I think is what exactly. She's yeah, and the I guess what I'm talking getting at with the hypocrisy argument is yeah, it depends on how you look at it. So that woman is making maybe a justified claim, but she's still only looking at it through a very narrow lens, you know, and an argument and I just made an argument against John John being quote Hawaiian, but maybe his local community on the North Shore would be like, "Hey, he is we've welcomed him as family and now he's ingrained in our roots and he is Hawaiian. We are all about family and we've welcomed him and his family. And now they're part of a family. It doesn't matter how long they've been, you know what I mean? So you can look at it any given way and two different neighbors will tell you different versions of how they feel about it. So, well, I mean, at the end of the day, from, from like a purely capitalist standpoint, which this article goes into a little bit, there's no doubt that, that, the people that run the surf industry are not from Hawaiian descendants. And I think yeah. that that's where they're a little disappointed that this thing has developed into a massive multi-billion dollar industry and Hawaiians aren't necessarily like the captains of any of the industries, you know, like there's, and, um, you know, I, it's a sociological discussion. It's a way bigger th- discussion. Oh yeah. Look, yeah. I mean, it's not like they've been um, exiled from the industry or kept out, you know, from the industry. And I'm sh- so, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's a it, much no, bigger it, problem. Oh, it's, it's a huge, 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 yeah. huge thing that's beyond the, uh, even though we're <laughs> experts, and, you know, it's beyond even our expertise. Um, so I've got a question that you are an expert about that a listener would like you to chime in on. Yeah. So Dave... I've been questioning lately, what's the proper etiquette for communication with a shaper after ordering a board for them? We all know how busy (laughs) uh, shapers are. (laughs) You already see where this is going. Um, I get it, but what do you think the appropriate time is for checking in for when your board is gonna be finished if you should check in with them at all? Or do I just wait it out until it shows up on my doorstep? Say, for instance, I ordered a board six months ago. Is it cool to send an email asking for an update? Granted, I know this is a mystery and there are still finite situational variables, but I'm struggling because I want my board and I really don't want to just be that. But I also don't really want to be an annoying customer. Well, this is a great question. And each one, each situation is different, right? I think the first thing you need to do is right up front when you order a board, be direct and 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 demand transparency regarding the time frame and and 
and ask them when is it a good time to check in or will you be will you be reaching out to me to let me know that the board's now in the sanding process you know like be upfront about it and if there's a shaper that's like prickly about that i'd move away there's a million friggin' shapers that that are good business people will be like here's the deal i got to be honest with you right now you're looking at 12 weeks maybe more and um it's just you know and they'll explain the situation and so my personal thing, and I don't, I'm not antsy for whenever I get my board. Um, I mean, you might remember a couple, like a while ago, Smith Shapes is like, hey, we want to get you a board under your feet. You know, I've never seen that board and I doubt I will. And I'm sure it just fell through the cracks and I'm cool with that, whatever, you know, but, but, you know, so that's, a, so for me, I guess what I'm getting at is that I never, I just order a board and if it shows up great, if it doesn't great, you know? Like, yeah. Because you're, you're in a very different position though. Um, I, th- but your advice I think is salient. Be clear about your expectations and your communication. And I would also add to that, that a lot of shapers I know, and maybe people in general, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. So if you are like, like you just explained you are where, Hey, I'll just place an order and maybe I get it. I, maybe I won't. That order card tends to never get pushed to the top of the pile. But the guy who says, all right, you said 12 weeks. Okay. I'll be calling you in eight weeks just to check on the progress of it. That guy will get probably as bored in the 12 week time. time yeah. Now this gentleman, he said he's been waiting six months. That's, he said that's it issue. was, yeah, I would agree that is an issue. He used it as a hypothetical. He said, say, for instance, if you ordered a board six months ago, so maybe six months is like you're you're getting ripped off. Like six yeah. months at the six months mark, that guy cashed your check and maybe hasn't even shaped your board yet. Right. You know what I mean? And the, unfortunately, there are those types out there, you know, Yeah. because yeah. shapers are sort of hand to mouth. It's a tough pr- profession to be in. Um, cash flow is an issue and things get it, things get behind and things get ahead of them and they're struggling to make it happen. You know, um, that doesn't mean it's okay. I'm just saying that happens. It happens. Happened uh, to me. It's yeah. happened to you. It's, it happens to people. I'd be diligent is the point. Um, clear with communication and diligent, but six is that months. Your shaper long. chiming in to tell you your board's done on your, is that Roger can, Hines going, dude, uh, your fifth board is ready. That guy pumps that? out boards. Oh yeah. I can hear people chiming Sorry. in. Sorry about that. I'll try to put it on probably padded Lauren going, you know what? Wash your hair, dude. <laughs> Feed the dog. I see stuff um, in your hair. There's like little specks in your hair right now. I can no, see there is. I swear to God, there's those are natural highlights. This is a little dot. Like there's those are that natural thing? highlights, dude. You see that thing in the, top? In the sun it would be the top yeah, right. Kind of where your part is. No, you just it's it, fine. still there. It's still there. Dude, it's I don't know what you're talking about. I can't see it. No, no, like right uh, at the top of this. Top I'm not off. playing this game with you. <laughs> I feel like you're just messing with me. Uh, speaking of speaking of surfboard shapers, yet yeah. another one um, passes this week. We've been, I mean, it's been a crazy year of icons passing. Yeah. Um, Rich Harbor. Yeah. Harbor surfboards. Seal yeah. Beach, California, a mere three miles, four miles from where I sit this very moment. One of the very, very first shop, first surf shops that I ever spent time in when I was young. Um, Rich Harbor passed away this past Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. It's horrible. I mean, it, I mean, he, he lived a long, full life, but, yeah. um, and it's very sad, you know, 
and he was an absolute icon of foam, an absolute legend, and a guy who touched a lot of California surfers and beyond. Um, Sam Shapers. George has, has written a great piece in uh, on surfline. Surf yeah, so Rich, uh, the word the name, the phrase legend gets passed around uh, way too frequently, of course, but Rich is legit and. Um, he influenced not only surfers, but so many shapers in Southern California and was very humble, ran a solid business, had tremendous kind of uh, cultural kind of, yeah, influence, I guess is the best way to put it in the area and beyond. I mean, that Harbor Surfboards logo yeah. is so iconic. And I mean, we think of international surf brands logos. Those are iconic and, and recognizable around the world. But think of a more iconic one from a tiny, single individual surf shop. I mean, that surf shop is barely a thousand feet. And that logo is kind of recognizable from around the world. No, it is. It's, it is an international logo. And, and a lot of that just has to do with how, um, you know, how consistent Rich Harbor was. I mean, same shop, same shaper, same place for whatever it was, 60, 70 years. I mean, he was in the same scene. Um, Somebody else mentioned, I think the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center mentioned that he is the last original shop with the original factory behind the shop with the original surf shop at the same place in the world. There's no other, you know, even how up in Santa Cruz moved a few times from a couple of addresses in Santa Cruz, you know, like, you know, a couple blocks away here or there. That's he's been in that same Main Street building for Rich Harbor has been for forever. And and what a bunch of cool boards. I mean. You know, the trestle special, uh, Mike Marshall, who was a shaper for Rich Harbor, who made a lot of trestle specials. Um, you know, he's, we of course have the um, Mike Marshall perpetual trophy at the boardroom show that we give to the winner of the yeah. Icons of Foam Shape Off, which is, you know, an indirect homage to Rich Harbor. And yeah. Um, yeah. And talking, a lot of those boards are up in the rafters and at Harbor Surfboards today. So you can walk in there and kind of see a lot of that history just on display. Um, but yeah, that shaping bay is still back there. You walk in there and you can smell foam dust, you know? Um, it's pretty iconic. So Rich Harbor from Matt uh, Warshaw's Encyclopedia of Surfing. Rich Harbor got, his, got a surfboard on his 16th birthday. Two months later, the board was stolen and Harbor uh, broke and built one from scratch in 1962. After making and selling dozens of boards out of the family garage, Harbor dropped out of college to open Harbor surfboards in seal beach, just North of Huntington. I got booted out of my parents' garage. He later admitted when he got a new, when his parents got a yellow Camaro and a rich dripped resin on it. Because Harbor was just 18, his father had to co-sign the business license. His mother, Alice, kept the books, as she did for 33 years. And Steve Pesman wrote about Rich Harbor, that he was a hardworking, blue-collar board maker. The boards were clean, and business was good. Rich was 77 on Sunday when he passed away. And the, final, the first board he ever shaped was when he was 16. The final board that he shaped was in 2019. And he numbered every single one of them. And the final board he shaped was number 32,680. Wow. 
that's quite a legacy he's left behind in surfboards. And, um, you know, my heart goes out to the Harbor family and it's just a sad deal. And um, you're right, we've, gosh, we've lost a lot of legendary shapers here. They're getting that whole 60s, 70s era guys are getting to that age, you know? Yeah. Well, um, I did a podcast with Rich Harbor back in 2013. I feel like it was episode how, how number that? 13. I'm going to, I'm going to re-listen to it and maybe recut it, maybe add some other stuff to it and publish it in the next week or two. Uh, but I haven't listened to it in, you know, seven years, eight years. Yeah. So, but he was totally lucid. And uh, I remember, I remember having a, you know, enjoying it at the time. Yeah. Cool. Um, do you want to, there's a couple of online fights this week. Do you have any commentary on, Kenvin versus Joel or stab versus the whole nation of Brazil. You know what? Um, the Kenvin versus Joel thing. I just, I don't, I don't have the energy for it to me. It's kind of like, it's none of my business really. I, I've got a question for you then yeah. about it. Cause yeah. I felt the same way where it felt ugly, you know, yeah. it's like pops up and they're arguing about a business deal. I'm like, you owe me money. Oh, I don't owe you money. You owe the, So Joel commented on one of Kenvin's posts, but then the reason it became blown up is because Kenvin screenshotted that and put Joel's comment as his main post. And then of course, all the fighting ensued underneath that, basically saying Joel rhymes with troll. My question to you is, are they both self-aware enough to just kind of be doing this to, for clicks, for views, to drum up interest? Like, I think Joel is. Joel does kind of go online and just throw barbs around and get in fights with everybody. And and it's kind of entertaining, to be perfectly honest. But I'm wondering if Kenvin saw that as an opportunity to kind of just, let's get into headlines this week. Let's work well, the I, algorithm. I don't know. I don't know. I can't speak for, for that. Um, you know, they're both San Diego legends. Um, and I'm acquaintances with both of them. Um, and, and I like both of them and I don't want to get in the middle of it. It's really none of my business to be honest with you. And, and frankly, I've got, I'm way too busy to dive into the weeds on getting in, involved in it. You know, it's just, it's, to me, it's something you turn and you walk the other way. And what about, did you track the uh, stab versus Brazil thing in the last no, two days? But, no, but that interests me. What, what's going on there? So they wrote an article, actually, they had a freelancer, a guy who's contributed articles, his name's Steve Elaine. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Um, yeah, I know that he's a Alon. Brazilian guy, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he. I think he's the former editor of one of the magazines in Brazil. He is a longtime Brazilian surf journalist and writer, yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah. And so he wrote an article, he uh, pitched it to Stab, they approved it, and then he wrote it. And they published it. And it was about the headline was, is a Brazilian world or is Brazilian dominance bad for the WSL? Mm. And it, it kind of analyzed um, the strengths and the weaknesses of their kind of economy and support of the industry or lack thereof. And so if Brazilians are dominating, you know, does that limit the amount of growth that professional surfing can have, let's say outside of Brazil. It was an analysis of that. And 
of course, because people don't read the article itself, uh, they were enraged by the title and blew up. So I think it was actually a premium article on Stab. So maybe that's yeah, why was. people didn't read it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but was Stab it in Brazilian, was, by the way? Because I looked at I looked at no, it. No, not until now. Because so I saw it in Brazilian, I'm like, well, I don't read Portuguese, so I I'm not I can't click on that. I wanted to. No. But anyway, it was originally in English, okay. and so then they. But they posted the story on Instagram and um, to advertise it, right? Yeah. And the Instagram feed blew up with Brazilians calling them racist, essentially. So Stab, <laughs> Stab then went through the effort of having that article and the rebuttal or the apology and the apology all translated into Portuguese and posting the full Portuguese articles on their website in the last 48 hours. And okay, basically, hold on, hold on for just a sec, because this is, I want to get into this a little bit. Okay. But I have to take a break. My dog's barking. Hold on. Sure. We didn't hear When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Good boy. Okay. I got the dog sorted out. Good work. <laughs> it's weird. We never heard a bark. Oh, he's got a whimper. It's very mm. soft. Mm. Nice of you to quell him. Uh, so... <laughs> Quell's anxieties. Uh, so Stab printed the rebuttal and the apology in Portuguese and all that sort of stuff. Um, they were never in the wrong. I, I'll just, I'm going into my opinion now. I've given yeah. you the kind of facts. Yeah. Uh, Stab, the article was not racist. Uh, it might've been click, the headline might've been clickbaity and that's why Rage ensued on Instagram because they couldn't actually go and read the article if they didn't have a premium membership. But my problem with this is that Stab's retraction and apology was completely unnecessary. And them posting it in Portuguese, I am totally fine with. And by the way, the they've now made the article non-premium and they made the Portuguese version of it also non-premium so everybody can read it. Nobody will. Ultimately, whoever was screaming at them 
online is not going to now go click over and be like, oh, okay, this was a very rational level-headed article with a thorough analysis. And uh, I apologize for the rage that I spewed on Instagram two days ago. That'll never happen. And so my opinion on this is stab, don't apologize. You are in the right. You did nothing wrong. And the apology almost just makes you look weak. And it's only, again, you're, play, you're trying to placate somebody who just wants to be enraged online anyways. They're never going to come back and read the apology or the actual article. Well, I can't find the article in English anywhere. I'm on their site. Um, can you give me a, just a brief summary of what the original article stated? Or is it too, it it's, looks like a long article. Yeah, it is a long article, but it's it's what I kind of originally said, which is, um, you know, the major surf brands don't do a lot of commerce in Brazil, and there's not a lot of Brazilian surf brands that support mainstream surfing or prop it up in any way. So is the sheer dominance by Brazilian surfers going to translate to more audience for the, you know, WSL or... Is it going to translate to um, business, you know, commerce for surfing as a whole? Whereas you can make arguments yeah. that there's that that does happen in the USA and in Australia. Companies that thrive off of the promotion that they receive from the WSL end up, you know, buying sponsorships and advertising and all that sort of stuff. Well, I'm, I'm I, but it wasn't I'm, arguing that that actually is true or that that happens. It actually argues that, I wouldn't say it argues for it, but it makes a case that uh, Brazil, Brazilian dominance could be a good thing for surfing. Yeah, I, I'm reading, I found it in English now. And to me, it just, it reads like a well-researched article you'd find it in is. like the Financial Times of London or something like. It's, and I, again, it I haven't it's read not the racist, thing. And it's not racist in any way. And it is, um, stating a conversation that takes place in surf in the surf industry yeah 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 and you and i've had this conversation many times like yeah. is that like you know does this benefit the wsl like where's the money coming from basically this stab, is a question of where's the money coming from stab was not wrong in posting the article nor were they racist my my yeah, soft yeah my my problem with them yeah. is their response to it is kind yeah. of trying to placate everybody when yeah. the people who are screaming at them missed the point entirely and B won't accept the apology. Yeah. I think this almost needs like you and I to go through this point by point. It's not worth and, it. It's not even worth it. Yeah. If you're, if you're interested in the article, go to stab and read the article. It's not worth yeah. defending the article. You know, the article's totally fine. Um, but I felt this way, by the way, about Kenvin versus Joel as well, which is if their ambition, either one of them or both of them was to kind of just steal the headlines for the week, it's a bad look. It's just a bad look. The optics yeah. are bad, you know, like getting down and fighting like this is just, it's not. Yeah. I mean, you do steal the headlines, but it kind of tarnishes, uh, <laughs> both of their legacies in a certain way. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's yeah. It's, what are you laughing you at? You know, uh, one of the comments on this, <laughs> one of the comments is pretty funny. It says just one sentence. It says, 
Never forget that Guillermo Hurdy wore his leash on his front foot. <laughs> less drag. So, just a rant. Oh yeah, less drag for life. This seems like seems like a that's, funny comment. That's, that's all. Brendan Brendan Buckley's comment. Big big power surfer. Oh, is that Brendan Buckley? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He is funny. <laughs> I don't know um, who these guys are, but it's funny. he's funny. Um, by the way, the Challenger series for the WSL has been revealed. This is, of course, yes. the new kind of the new tier of the QS, the upper Tell echelon. Yes. So this is a scenario where the Challenger series takes place after the main season. Right. Um, this is our so, Jack Robinson scenario, basically. So this, this is, is where Jack Robinson scenario. This is where if you have a bad performance as a world-class surfer on the CT throughout a season, you can still re-qualify for next season CT through this challenger series. So it is still a qualifying uh, mm -hmm. tier, but yeah. it's the upper tier and yeah. you can't gain access to that upper tier unless you garner enough points through your regionals or on the CT, I, I presume. So where are these so, events? So these events just were released. It's an abbreviated year, of course, because of COVID. There's four events. It's Huntington Beach, Aracera, Portugal, uh, Hossager, France, and Haleiwa, Hawaii. Okay. So there's two events there, the back half that that Jack could could presumably do well in if the waves are six feet or bigger. Sunset is missing. And the first Tradition. two, the first two are problems for Jack Robinson. Yeah. The um you know, I'm okay. I like the structure. I like the format of this, of the season with this kind of being separate yeah. from, yeah. but the venues, unfortunately are not um, diverse and thorough enough to really kind of give somebody a go. And again, sunset missing is um, problematic, problematic. And also just um, historically, like it's always been there, you know? So the field, by the way, the, ch the challenger field will be made up of 96 men and 64 women um, made up of sunsets, not on the thing because it's going to be on the CT. Oh, Maybe is it? Get, well, I'm just assuming I'm thinking to myself, is there a triple crown? I'll leave a sunset and pipe. Is the triple crown just gone? Like did that just no disappear? Idea. We have I no bet idea. if it does disappear, that's what happens. It just disappears. Like everyone just kind of yeah. goes, forget it ever happened. And you're like, what happened to that thing? Yeah. But they did do the virtual triple crown. But my point is, is that you can only get probably, I'm assuming, because permits are tough in Hawaii, you can only get one. Because there's other ones like, you know. So if you can only get one, they're probably holding it for the CT. Because I thought before COVID, Sunset was on the CT. Yeah, it was. But I, I mean, that doesn't mean that they're just going to automatically add it back next time. Yeah. This yeah. stuff, this stuff. And even when they sign these, they have a press release that there's a three-year contract. It. I mean, that's not worth the paper that it's written on. You know what I mean? Yeah. That stuff changes every single time. Yeah. So I've, I have zero faith I, and I'd love to see it. And I hope that it is, but I have zero faith. Even now you were telling me about look. the format for these things, like how many people qualify. I, this is gotcha. where I don't really care. Like, this is like where you're like, I don't watch the ISA because there's just too much shit in the weeds. Like, but go ahead. I'm just saying like, yeah, yeah. I kind of qualify. I don't give a shit. I just want to know when are the finals. You know right. I mean? Well, uh, e the, even the numbers are pretty vast. Like there's 96 men, 64 women. It's a giant competition. Yeah. Um, it's made up of 34 men and 17 women from the CT. So all of the CT has wow. initial entree 
into That's these challenger series events. And then 58 men and 44 women that are allocated by, of course, the WSL regions. Um, Why even would you let the top 20 CT surfers surf in it and take 20 spots away from potentials? Dude, the only I, reason could be the triple crown. Yeah. The, well, the van's triple crown. Is the, I mean, I don't understand that. Yeah, nor do but, I. Or um, it's like the local Brazilian or French communities are like, we want our French stars at these events. So, you know, Michelle Perez needs to be in this event or what, you know what I mean? Like well, that's the they, other side of it. They have two men and women's wild cards and then also two men and women's uh, junior wild cards get entry as well. So they could utilize those for that. Yeah. Hmm, that's weird but, that they would, don't you find that to be strange? Yeah. What's the, uh, what's the upside for a top 20 CT guy that's already qualified to surf in a qualifying event? Uh there, I mean, other than just staying sharp in the off season, there probably is no reason and most probably won't surf in these events, which will give more access to the regional kind of people. They to just get felt like up. they had to offer that though. Maybe. Yeah. Just hmm. to make it completely uniform. Um, I've got musty moment and a Duke and a kook actually this week, Scott. Yeah. Let's hear all three of yours. 100 wit. 100 foot wave is a new documentary series that I'm going to recommend everybody watching this Sunday night. It premieres on HBO. Um, I'm interviewing Garrett McNamara, who is the star of this series. And uh, so they sent me the first four episodes, which I've already watched and I'm recommending people watch it. It premieres on HBO Sunday night, July 18th. And they're one hour. It's a documentary series and they're one hour bits, one hour episodes and uh, gosh, it's very well done. This is, we kind of run into this every once in a while, but when you get outside professional filmmakers telling a surfing story, they kind of do a better job than you and I do or than people under the microscope. Yeah. Look, looking under the microscope. Yeah, that's true, huh? They don't have the uh, paranoia. <laughs> to do, well, they're just like, whatever, I'll just tell the story. I don't care, I'm out of here. I'll tell the story and leave. I'll go to I India feel- and tell the story on India. We um, tend to rehash the same themes over and over. Let's talk about Andy Irons again, you know, or whatever. And there was a bunch of stuff, not one or two, but like dozens of things in this documentary series that were brand new to me, like important innovations in big wave development, whether methods or safety precautions or an actual device that Garrett invented, you know, like all of these kind of important cornerstones that I knew nothing about. I had never heard a lot of these stories before. And Garrett has the footage, you know, archival footage, because he's been shooting everything forever and provided all of that to the filmmakers and the filmmakers utilize that, show you all the different angles, interview all the different people involved. And it's like, man, this is fascinating. Really, really good. Are there any contrarians in this documentary? Yeah, there, well, there's a couple of conflicts. I wouldn't say there's, necessary contrarians i think the biggest um kind of theme contrarian theme is the fact that garrett exists in the periphery of the surf industry you know so it's like garrett doing all of these amazing things winning eight guinness world records and the surf industry just kind of glancing over from afar and being like oh sweet espn will run the clip good for you good for you garrett and you'll find sponsorship somewhere good for you keep going you know like that is kind of an interesting dynamic 
Yeah. Yeah. That is interesting, huh? There's just, for whatever reason, um, <clears throat> decision makers in the industry were just like, no, you, you know what? You could slay a 100 foot beast while riding a hundred foot wave. And we're still not going to give you any attention. It's weird, right? Yeah. Do you think I, mean, I, yeah. I was trying to think about it on my own and I'm wondering if it's just because that what he's doing is just not relatable to what I'm doing. And so it almost feels like, Oh, he's doing a different sport. Somebody else will cover it. Well, I look at it like this, like he's basically, he, he basically paved the way for what Kai Lenny and other guys are doing. Totally. Are we paying attention to what Kai Lenny's doing? Now we are. Yeah. Yeah. And why is that? So there, I mean, there's a lot of he's things forcing to... it in our face on Instagram and everything. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah. It's... I don't know that I would be otherwise. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, um, I'm looking forward to seeing this. It's good. It's really well done. And I'm glad to see it going mainstream, you know? Yeah. Um, in terms of like the ultimate surfer on ABC or uh, the <laughs> surfing in the Olympics or this going mainstream, this yeah. makes the most sense to me. This feels the most authentic. This feels um, like an actual story, you know? Yeah. It's not manufactured. It's It's significant achievement being yeah. documented. Uh, my, did you have another thought on that or should I go? Well, on? I'm just wondering, does, is, is, so is it the opinion of the documentary that Garrett McNamara has ridden the largest wave ever? It's uh, documenting his quest. Yes, he has ridden the biggest waves ever, but this is a According quest. According to who? Guinness Book. Yeah, but how, this does is that, a, how does that happen? In other words, if I ride a 110 foot wave instead of a 100 foot wave, but I don't submit it to the Guinness book. I'm not going to be the, the Guinness Correct. book. So it's, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not doubting that Garrett hasn't, I'm not questioning it. I'm just, my whole thing is like, why are we letting the Guinness book be the one that tells us who's ridden the biggest wave? Well, you know, you need some sort of agreed upon qualifying system. Well, how about the double XL? Like the, yeah, the, the that's WSL big wave awards. We'll give it, we'll let them decide. Who, who, who has ridden the biggest wave? Is it Garrett or is uh, it Mike current, Parsons or is currently it I don't Gabby? know. Is it a girl? Like, I, I, mean, I think it's still Garrett. These, are some of these waves that were ridden this year or at the most macking Nazare, were those even thrown into the Guinness fold or did somebody go, that's too much? Cause I, it's my understanding that uh, qualifying for the Guinness book of world records is quite a pain in the ass administratively. Yeah. Um, so, so by the way, this write it off. People go, nah, I get, I know, you know, we, we know it was a huge wave. Yeah. This um, documentary series is following his quest to ride the 100 foot wave. So I'm, I'm not going to reveal who, whether or not he's done it yet. I think it's a good question. Like who has ridden the biggest wave? And I'm sure that Guinness has their people. And I'm sure that the WSL has their people. And I'm sure that there's other filmmakers or whoever, tow teams are like, no, we think it was this guy. And, and I think that's the interesting documentary. Yeah. Who, who actually has ridden the biggest wave? I'm giving it to Garrett and Garrett's giving it to Garrett. Well, that's fine. And maybe it was Garrett, but I just think that the, like, that's why I asked if there's contrarians. Cause anytime you start talking about who rode the biggest wave, you know, you, there's other, you're going to get Bill Sharp raising his eyebrows. You're going to get, he's in it. You're, well, you know what I mean? Like, and, and so, and so I just want to know, is everyone in agreement? And if they're in agreement, why do we need Guinness? Nobody's even in agreement on how to measure a wave. Yeah, exactly. Which makes um, for a great document. My Duke is hometown hero. 
A local yes. announcer, DJ, and broadcaster Brad J from Santa Barbara will be the voice heard by millions in the weeks, uh, in a few weeks, as he takes up the mic for the first ever, ever Olympic surfing competition in Japan. Uh, Brad J has been involved in surfing and skateboarding his entire life since he first started bombing hills around Santa Barbara at the age of six. This isn't his first time calling an Olympic event, however. Uh, he lost his job as a DJ, a local DJ in 1999, and it led him to a point where he wanted to seek new options. And he was watching an X Games event and he's like, gosh, I've got these DJ, and again, not DJing at a party, but like a DJ on air radio DJ. Um, and so he's watching the X Games. He's like, dude, I know these sports really well. And I could absolutely be on the mic and comment, doing commentary for him. So he started out with the X Games, kind of worked his way around through action sports. Then he found himself himself calling the Clippers and the Dodgers games. And now he's being called up for, and he actually got called up into the Winter Olympics via his X Games uh, experience and did some Red, Red Bull Signature Series stuff. But now he will be calling surfing for the first time ever in the Olympics. Uh, extending his reach to 171 countries. Brad J. Wow, good for him. I, I also saw on Instagram that Chris Cote was going to Tokyo to call the Olympics. Amazing. Good Did job for that? Chris. Yeah, yeah I, I didn't see that. So I wonder if Brad and Chris are teaming up. Maybe. Brad does the play-by-play -play and Chris does the color or vice versa. Don't know, but um, that's a huge boon for Chris. Good for him. Yeah. My uh, kook of the week is going to be, it's really adding insult to injury, literally. Uh, poopies. Jamie oh, O'Brien's <laughs> former fall guy from his vlogs. I don't follow him close enough to understand what the falling out ever was, but apparently he's not working with Jamie anymore. But he's um, been called up by the jackass crew for Shark Week. So this week is Shark Week on Discovery Channel. And the Jackass crew, of course, does stunts. And Poopies was a stunt doing the stunts for Jamie O'Brien. Um, again, the fall guy. Just like, hey, here's something we conceived of that nobody has the balls to do. Hey, Poopies, you do it. And um, he did it. And he's developed quite a bit of celebrity off of it, enough to be now on uh, international mainstream cable. And uh, apparently they poured chum on him and threw him off a boat into shark infested waters. Oh, they didn't throw so, him off. They didn't throw him off. Oh, was he skiing behind it? Yeah, he, ski, yeah. he was ski jumping over yeah. the, a sh the shark area. Trying to literally Re jump a shark. Recreating the Fonzie Happy Days episode where Fonzie jumped over a shark. And <laughs> ends up getting his hand bitten by a shark. He would have bled out if they didn't have professional medical dive team on hand and got to him immediately, but he did have to go into surgery to reattach the hand and the tendons and uh, two major arteries. Well, that's gnarly. I actually watched the footage of this yesterday. I, I got caught up in the clickbait of it all. And um, I'm glad he's getting better. I'm glad he's health, you know, getting, getting his arm back together and that he, it wasn't worse, obviously, right? But um, yeah, I mean, shit's gonna happen, you know. It's a lot of ways to make a living, Scott. There are. That's the call you don't want to take. Hey, we're from Jackass. We'd like to call you up for Shark Week. You're like, uh oh. Yeah, and then <laughs> right as again. you're right as you're hanging up, they say the number of the pay the price on the paycheck, 
and all of a sudden the phone comes back to your ear. Well, uh, so was he your kook and duke or was he both of us? He's the kook. That's gnarly. I know. It's, well, it's gnarly to even call him a kook because, again, adding insult to injury, but it is what it is. Yeah. I don't yeah. make the rules, Scott. I just call the plays. Well, let me tell you about the Boardroom Surfboard Show presented by U.S. Blanks. It's coming up September 25th and 26th. In a little bit more than two months here, we're going to be opening doors to the surfboard manufacturing industry and consumers, and it's going to be a, a heck of a gathering. We're very excited about it. We're honoring Pat Rawson, of course, in the icons of foam shape-off. We've got eight shapers competing in honor of Pat's legacy as one of the greatest shapers ever. And... Um, We've got a lot of other fun stuff, including Best in Show. There's going to be an incredible exhibit with all of the Best in Show surfboards. Um, of course, the board shaper talks, discussions and seminars. We've got Fred Hemmings coming in. We've got um, some great talks that Chris Morrow's putting together. Um, we've got a resin and art exhibit. We've got RevChem and Douglas Surf Company doing a How It's Made exhibit. And of course, a hall filled with incredible surfboards, wetsuits, hard goods um, from the surf manufacturing industry. Always a great place to connect with listeners in person, too. Absolutely. Come say hi to David and I. Um, it's David, an endless a, stream. David has Surf Splendor has a booth. So that's good. Is Chaz going to be there? I don't know. I haven't talked to him yet. But if he's available, I'll try to get him to come by and sign some books. Who else? Don't you have some East Coast guys under your umbrella? Ain't that swell or no? Just uh, yeah, Tyler, the, the Brewer his, brother. Yeah, Tyler. The Tyler their, don't they have a really a historically based podcast? Yes, they do Sunday Joint, which is based off of Matt Warshaw's Sunday newsletter that he sends right. every right. week. Yeah, so they recap that and go deep. Actually, go are they, much much deeper. Are they going to show up? They should come out. I, I'll talk to him. I'll ask him yeah, if he can. I would love for them to come out. The Brewer brothers. Yeah. Um, so there's that. And of course, then we also have the California Gold Surf Auction, which ends a week after on October 2nd. And so we're procuring, oh my God, do we have some insane boards for this auction? It's, it's going to be incredible. Sweet. Yeah. Um, so anyway, we got all that going on. And of course, the Headstock Guitar Lovers Festival taking place November 6th and 7th. If you love guitars, you're going to want to check that out in San Diego, November 6th and 7th, a guitar show. Awesome. Yeah, man. All right, Scott, great show. Great show, bros. Until next time, adios and aloha.